There are new books in the Everyday Novelist series coming out this year, so be sure to visit everydaynovelist.com support to join up and get your free copies of these new books as they're coming out, as well as other goodies that we've got up our sleeves. Welcome to the Everyday Novelist. My name is J. Daniel Sawyer, and what the hell, we're still here after all these years, talking creativity, business, art, discipline, and just about everything else we can think to cram into the writing life. Welcome to The Questions, episode 1091. Welcome back to the Everyday Novelist. There has been a bit of a gap, but you all came through in stunning fashion, and we have at least a few questions here for you. Remember, if you want to keep this show going, you gotta send the questions in, because, oh my god, does it take a lot of work to come up with a new topic every day. I am your host, J. Daniel Sawyer. And I'm Kitty Nikian. But what are you? Oh, your co-host. Yes, there we go. Right, um... Boy, talk about throwing me off my stride at the beginning of a recording block. We're supposed to be collaborating here. <laughs> Today we hear from Tim, who hopefully is more coherent than many things have been up here this time of year, especially the weather, which keeps trying to become spring again. It's very confusing. Tim asks... Do you see your characters more like real people, or more like toys with all manners of features to employ in the narrative? Uh, well, these are certainly two ways of seeing things. The former is much more typical of primarily writers and readers and interested in drama and or myth. And the second is much more common with writers who are engineers, and especially gamers. Because when you're looking at your characters like uh, tools to move around the game board, I mean, that's exactly what you're doing. You're plugging holes with widgets. Now, it can work either way, but there are tells. Often tell which kind of writer a writer is by the way they do such things. I am obviously of the dramatist school, and I'm a bit smug about it. I don't like the uh, gamesman school, but I'm going to try to give it a fair shake. J.R.R. Tolkien had this, was essentially a theological idea, that um, humans being made in the image of God, which he believed because he was a Catholic, are endowed with a reflection of the nature of God, and because he was a Catholic, the nature of God is primarily that God makes things. So humans, um, and part of this was he was defending himself against the charge of participating in the debasement of religion and the encouragement of heresy and uh, the elevation of witchcraft because he wrote fantasy literature in an age when um, Christians were particularly priggish about such things in an age and a culture. He argued that uh, it was actually the human's duty to create these imaginary worlds to honor uh, the work of God. Now, I'm an atheist, but this is actually a pretty good way to do things. And it it's a good way to do things because it allows you to get around a couple of really basic creative problems that tend to beset uh, artists, especially early stage artists. The first is the Mary Sue problem. When you're writing a story in order to make a point, um, it's very, very easy to 
to not write the story and simply preach. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't good preachy novels out there. There are. I've recommended many over the years here. It's an old tradition called the philosophical dialogue, and it was always dressed up as fiction, even back when Plato was writing it, when he wrote the um, Phaedo and the Euthyphro and the other dialogues like that. Um, you can see it in the Bible. The book of Job is an example of a philosophical dialogue. Um, Ayn Rand's books are philosophical dialogues, though not nearly as successful in my view, because she doesn't really put uh, good counter-arguments across. She merely uses... Uh, the, the point of a philosophical dialogue is to show you the tension in ideas in order to explore them fully. And uh, one of the things that drives me nuts about Rand, especially considering that as a prose stylist she was amazing, is that her ideological work is so one-sided that it's, it almost doesn't even qualify as a dialogue. It's just a sermon. So that's, that's a weakness in that form. But uh, when you are viewing your novels, your stories, your artistic work as sub-creation, as, as a, you are the god of this little universe, and your job is to make the little universe work, you've still got all the latitude in the world to go after themes and ideas and topics that allow you to comment on the world we live in. But that point of view forces you to have an integrity about how you pull your work off. And that focus on artistic integrity, and by that I mean the integrity of the artifice, the completeness of the illusion you're weaving, will save you from many of the pitfalls that writers tend to fall into. And not only early stage writers, uh, Ted Sturgeon, I think, oh no, it wasn't Ted Sturgeon, it was a New York Times literary critic, said of H.G. Wells in the 1910s that he sold his soul for a pot of message because his early novels, the ones we remember him for, were The World's Time Machine, The Invisible Man, the First Men in the Moon, The Island of Dr. Moreau, those are all rip-roaring good stories. They also heavily feature his ideological viewpoint, which was Fabian Socialism, which has a very interesting history if you want to dive into it. But he put his ideas across embedded in incredibly good stories, as opposed to his later works like The Shape of Things to Come, which basically are just preachments with a very thin veil of story over them, and they're just not very interesting, and thus they haven't lasted in the popular consciousness. So I'm really big on the integrity of the artifice. So I think, uh, I think Tolkien is instructive here, and you can read more in his essay on fairy stories where he talks about his philosophy of these things. A second way to approach storytelling is the gamer's way of doing it. Often, though not always, you'll see engineers doing this. But gamers are, sp are particularly guilty of this. They view drama as a sort of uh, Lego block kit. And they look for the right pieces to stick together to make their Lego sculpture. You'll want the thief. You'll want the rogue. You'll want... You know, they, they pull pure archetypes. And they don't develop their characters very much beyond that. Even if they draw them very well... Um, Writers that write this way, there's a certain mechanistic, formulaic feel to how they do it. It's a, there's a feeling that you're, that you're walking through a paint-by-numbers type of thing. You can also see this sort of writing very commonly, like in old-formula sitcoms. 
Um, a lot of stuff Hollywood's putting out right now is very much this way. It's a lazy way to write. Now, like any way to write, just because it's lazy doesn't mean it's awful. And I have known a handful of gamesmen who write really good stories even though I find their characters to be a bit thin. This way of storytelling works really well for them, and so I have to give it its due. It's, it's doable. It can be made to work. But it is the kind of storytelling that you will often fall into if you tend to study literary theory too much and don't actually consume literature very much. The more stories you consume, the better you'll know how to tell a story. Studying literary theory has its uses for a storyteller, but one of them is not learning how to tell a story. Um, when you try to hew too closely to a formula, you don't wind up with a story. You wind up with a formula with a fresh paint job. And that is the problem with formulas and stuff. So let's talk about artifice. What is artifice? Artifice is what makes something art. It's what makes something artificial. Artifice is the illusion that you are weaving with your words. When you write, once upon a time, there was a dude named Suave Rob and he wanted to surf a supernova, right? None of those things are true. Even if they were true, the sentence itself is still a lie. They're, the sentence brings up a picture. Um, once upon a time, there was a hobbit named Frodo who wanted to destroy a ring, right? It, it Those things, especially once you get into the context of the story, those evoke a picture, they evoke feelings, they evoke... Um, they, they lure the listener or the reader along on the journey. A journey that's comprised of little squiggly bits of code on a paper background. None of this stuff exists. Even if you're describing real events, the description itself is a lie. And the reason it's a lie is because it's an illusion. You are weaving an illusion. You're seducing someone else's mind into going on this imaginary journey with you. Now, you've heard things like terms of the willing suspension of disbelief, right? The audience says, okay, I know this isn't real, but I'm going to pretend. That is a really important idea, but it does, for the storyteller, it can kind of distract you from the main point, which is that your job is the job of the stage magician. Your job is to create an illusion so compelling that the people who are participating in it forget it's an illusion for a little bit of time. You don't want them to say, oh, it's just for fun, I will pretend it's true. You want them not to be able to help but believe it's true. And this is the difference between self-aware storytelling, like uh, people like uh, Joss Whedon made popular, where you're always winking at the audience and hanging lampshades on things. This kind of storytelling has its place and it can be really fun, but it does not hold a candle to the consciousness hijacking potential of genuine good artifice. The Joss Whedon School of Storytelling is uh, heavy on what's called bathos, which is when the, when the narrative, either in the narrator's voice or through the actions of the characters or through the contrivances of plot, basically undermines the audience's emotional investment in it. It's a really good tool for comedy, and real masters at the top of their form can use it as a double bluff way to double and triple audience investment. It's not easy, and even the masters of this form don't hit it right very often because it is so hard. Young writers who have experienced this kind of thing at the feet of a master 
often will jump into it because it feels less threatening than being earnest. When you are weaving a sincere illusion, there's a part of yourself that's on display. There's a vulnerability that comes with that, a fear that maybe the audience will mistake your thoughts for the thoughts of the main characters. Maybe they'll brand you with the tar of a believer in ideas that your characters are merely exploring. Uh, brand, you, uh, brand you with the tar. I mean, tar you with the brush. Um, or whatever. And when you are afraid of the reaction of your audience, when you lack confidence, resorting to bathos is a great way to dip your toe in the water and say, no, I didn't mean it. Wait, you liked it? Okay, I really did mean it. Oh, you didn't like it? No, I really didn't mean it. It's okay, we're all friends here. It's indicative of a lack of confidence, and it really betrays the reader's investment in the story unless you're executing it on a master level. There's other ways to do humor that don't involve bathos. P.G. Woodhouse, Douglas Adams, these guys were masters of humor without uh, removing the pathos from the situation. And those are the people you would want to study. The integrity of the artifice is what you should be aiming for as a narrative artist. Even if you're writing RPG fiction, even if you're writing, especially if you're writing category romance and other by-the-numbers stuff, when you're writing by-the-numbers stuff, the audience knows all the numbers and they will not slip away into your world unless the illusion is completely compelling. This is why it is way harder to write exploitation fiction than it is to write grand opera. Because everybody knows exploitation fiction is there for one reason only, and that's to thrill you with the lurid, whether that exploitation fiction is romance or porn or crime fiction or um, whatever else. The lowest tier in terms of respectability, the lowest tier pulp stuff is the hardest stuff to write because it requires absolute dedication to the integrity of the illusion on the part of the writer. Because your audience is sophisticated and they know better than you do how you can screw it up. And they're waiting for that excuse to get out because there are a thousand other pulp writers behind you and one of them might be doing it better and they are looking for the experience of being lost in the story. So, artifice, very, very important. Drama, when it comes to characters, drama is also really important. And drama is not simply loud arguments and conflict and the stuff that we in real life would say, oh, I don't want all that drama. Now, drama is when two or more values, not characters, not situations, not anything else, two or more value come to loggerheads. Those values could be ambitions, they could be material things, they could be characters, they could be things the characters care about, they could be the objectives of one or more players in the story. Something which the reader has invested in comes into conflict with something else, and that something else either needs to be something that the reader has investment in, or something that is so plausibly an obstacle to what the reader has investment in that the reader can't stop holding their breath going, oh my god. How is the thing I care about going to win here? Or if you've got two things the reader cares about, how is this going to resolve when these two important things are at loggerheads? How is this going to not be a disaster? And of course, when it is a disaster, we call that tragedy. Drama is really... It's the second thing beyond the artifice. The, in fact, the drama can create the artifice. David Mamet talks about weaving drama through dialogue 
without character, without setting, without anything, simply by the interplay of words. His masterclass on writing drama, it's, it's, I, I subscribed to masterclass.com for a couple of years. David Mamet's masterclass on writing is the only thing there that's really worth the money, but it's worth way more than they're charging. Everything else, really, you can get better versions of on YouTube, eh, with a couple exceptions. Um, but David Mamet's masterclass on writing is unbelievably good, and you should go and watch it. Now, the point of all of this, the point of characterization of plot of storytelling, the whole bit, is play. What you're doing is you are inviting your audience to engage in a game of make-believe with you. So you want to provide as many inducements of them for them to play with you as possible, and as few obstacles to them being willing to let go and play with you as possible. What counts as obstacles and inducements is going to vary depending on your audience. If you're writing books for children, you know, that their parents read to them before they know how to read, you've got a way lower bar in terms of uh, throwing obstacles up. You also have a higher bar in terms of investment because attention spans. But when you're dealing with sophisticated adult readers, you've got a pretty high bar when it comes to not creating the things that'll kick your readers out of the book. But you tend to have a, f a little bit of a lower bar when it comes to investment because adults have pretty predictable things that'll hook them, whereas children are still developing, so at different developmental stages, different hooks work and don't. So you want to know your core audience, or at least your intended audience, pretty well. But all of it is in service of playing make-believe. Every time you see two five-year-olds sitting around playing cowboys and Indians or playing house or having a tea party or whatever, what you're seeing is humans engaging in the most fundamental kind of learning that we're able to do, which is to understand through imitation. And when you have your readers on, on the hook, they are becoming a voice in the head of your character. And they are understanding the world through the eyes of your character. And if you do your job right, when they close the final cover on that book, their time with your character will have done something to their consciousness. And that something may last their whole lives if the book hits them at the right time. So you want to... Whether you're going from an from a gamer developer type of point of view, or from a method acting, sub-creation, characters are their own genuine people type of point of view, or somewhere in between. The integrity of the artifice is absolutely everything. Thank you very much for the question, Tim, and we'll see you tomorrow. The Everyday Novelist is written and presented by J. Daniel Sawyer and Kitty Nakian and is distributed by Artistic Whispers Productions, Incorporated. The text and production are copyright 2024, J. Daniel Sawyer. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, and all other rights are reserved to the author. All of you have made this podcast possible for the last few years with your support and with your questions. And now I'm going to ask you for one more thing. Reviews. We've got to spread the word and get the everyday novelist out to the new generation of writers that are coming online and are lost. 
swimming out there on the internet with no hope of solidarity because, hey, the world's a fractious place. So if you could take a moment and leave a review at one or two places, or post about us on your favorite social media venues, we would be ever so grateful. We cannot do this without you.